This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. For those following the Supreme Court, last year's session and the attending controversies regarding race, election law, and the environment looks set to be a preview of similar questions facing the court in this session. Oral arguments that began October 3rd kicked off with spirited questions on the Voting Rights Act that had strong appeals to constitutional originalism coming not only from the court's six conservative justices, but also from President Biden's recent nominee, Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson. In this new session, the Supreme Court will be asked to decide questions such as what obligations states have to make voting fair, whether race can be considered in college admissions, and if the Environmental Protection Agency has an obligation to make clear rules for all to understand and follow. Indeed, this session promises to keep the Supreme Court in the public's eye as they determine what our Constitution requires on important issues that touch nearly every American. My guest today is Thomas Berry, research fellow in the Cato Institute's Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies and managing editor of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Mr. Barry will share with us his views on the key questions facing the new court in this upcoming session and discuss how these decisions can serve to either reinforce or redefine how the Constitution guides our laws, our rights, and our nation. When I return, I'll be joined by constitutional scholar Thomas Barry. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by Cato Institute Research Fellow and Constitutional Scholar Thomas Berry. Welcome back to Hubwonk, Tommy. Great to be back. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. And, and before we begin, I just want to say I uh, actually uh, read a copy of uh, Cato's Supreme Court Review that you are the editor for. So, uh, you know, for the benefit of our listeners, I just want to give a plug for what I consider to be great, great stuff. Uh, effectively, it's a uh, compendium of all uh, the cases that happened in the prior session. Um, and it's well-written, and I think it's designed for lay people like me uh, uh, who don't have time to go through all the cases uh, on their own. So uh, before we jump into current events, uh, share with our listeners, how do you, uh, what's the charter for that um, that publication, and, and how do you go about building it? Sure. Well, it's quite an undertaking to put it together so fast. We're the first publication uh, to come out uh, with uh, law review articles on the previous year's term. Uh, we give our authors a mandate to not speak in legalese and to write primarily for a lay audience of educated readers. So you don't have to be a lawyer or have a law degree to understand what they say. We say cut out the Latin and the jargon, and we keep them shorter than most law review articles, typically uh, 20 pages or even less. Um, and we focus on why do these cases matter? Uh, what shift in the doctrine do they signal? What effect are they going to have on people's daily lives? Um, and we admit our biases. We come at it from a Madisonian, Jeffersonian separation of powers perspective, but we don't tell our authors you have to agree with us on every single point. If we did, we would just reprint our amicus briefs over the year. So we uh, reach out, we invite 
uh, authors who we generally agree with and know will do a good job and we let them take whatever position they want. And sometimes they write on cases where Cato did not take a position. So the Dobbs case is a paradigmatic example of that, where we did not file an amicus brief, but we have an excellent article by Evan Burnick, a young superstar uh, law professor, uh, an originalist scholar, um, who's quite critical of, of the reasoning in that decision. And I think that's a, that's a great example of uh, what our what our publication is all about. Wonderful. And I think it's what we need now when we have all these uh, uh, assertions of the uh, challenging the legitimacy of the Supreme Court. I think it it helps to renew um, readers respect for all the reasoning and all the thought that goes into each of these decisions. So so let's move on to uh, current topics now. Uh, uh, but in the in the Department of of uh, Housekeeping, you and I have met on this podcast to talk about the challenges of the Electoral Count Act, the, the fact that it's a very vague and old act uh, that encourages or perhaps helps foment uh, some of the disagreement that we see um, in in uh, presidential elections, particularly. Uh, there's been some um, movement in Congress to try to fix uh, what's wrong with the Electoral Count Act. Um, by your estimation, as someone who studies this, um, what's going right and what's uh, what perhaps is being overlooked in, in that? You're right. There's been a lot of action. Uh, the House has passed a bill uh, co-sponsored by Zoe Lofgren and Liz Cheney. And the Senate uh, has a bill that was generally drafted by a working group, a bipartisan working group led by Susan Collins and Joe Manchin. That's now passed the Senate Rules Committee on a 14 to 1 vote. Um, there are some significant differences with the between the two bills, but the core of both is the same. And I think that that core is a good one, which is it one raises the threshold for how many senators and representatives you need to bring a challenge to an electoral vote. It clarif- both clarify that the vice president has ministerial roles. So the vice president alone can't say, I disagree with how this state conducted this its election. I'm not going to present these votes to Congress or I'm going to unilaterally veto them. Both make clear the vice president can't do that. Uh, And both of them uh, make clear that you can't toss out votes uh, just because you disagree with uh, how the states conducted its election, that that Congress is limited to a a narrower constitutional role of essentially uh, ensuring that the baseline uh, constitutional procedures were followed in the Electoral College. Uh, In my view, the House bill does a better job of getting into the nitty gritty of what exactly those legitimate reasons to toss out a vote would be. Uh, It goes through them point by point, case by case, and lists every single legitimate reason and makes clear if a reason is not on this list, it's not legitimate and you can't toss out a vote for any other reason. Uh, The Senate bill doesn't attempt to make a definitive list. Uh, It kind of borrows language from the pre-existing Electoral Count Act. So in my view, it would probably be better policy long-term to make a definitive list just to remove any last ambiguity. But I understand there are practical political considerations of the the more specific your list is, the harder it is to get a consensus to agree to everything. And that's probably why the Senate, which is a a more of a political balancing act to get something through there with the 60 vote uh, filibuster threshold uh, has really been more of a, a case of political compromise. More likely than not, though, the Senate bill is going to be the the framework that's likely to get enacted into law. And as someone who studies this and you identify yourself as a Madisonian constitutionalist, someone who respects state rights, uh, does it uh, set the bar high enough for challenging election results? And or on the other side, does it take away any important election prerogatives from states? 
I think it does set the bar at the right level. And I don't think uh, the states need to worry that it takes anything away from them. States still under the Constitution have a, a right to set the manner of choosing electoral votes in any way they want. It's right there in the Constitution. A state doesn't even have to have a general election. It could have its state legislature pick them. No one state has done that in a century, but they still could. Um, but the Constitution is specific that the federal government has the right to set the time of choosing electors. So what both of these bills make clear is that the state can't go back after the fact, after November 2nd or whenever the general election is, and say, we want a do-over. We don't like uh, how that went went down. Um, and that's completely within Congress's right and, and is, in fact, the right way to do things, to say, states, you can pick whatever procedure you want, but you have to make it clear in advance. You can't change the rules after the game has been played. Fair enough. Uh, perhaps we'll revisit that one. Uh, uh, one version or the other is actually passed. So let's move on to our, our conversation today, uh, specifically talking about the... Um, a new Supreme Court, the new Supreme Court session. Uh, and we've already opened pe- this past week uh, with uh, oral arguments on some of the cases. Uh, we have a new justice, Katanji Brown-Jackson, as, as we've said in the past, a new new uh, justice means a new court. Um, and we've already had some uh, very lively uh, oral arguments. Uh, so let's get right started right away with uh, the first one I want to talk about is Merrill v. Milligan. This is a very important case talking about whether it's in this case, the state of Alabama, uh, drew its districts. Uh, those uh, districts were challenged by a district court uh, as being um, uh, unfairly drawn. And uh, it got kicked up to the Supreme Court to say, okay, um, uh, what are the rules guiding um, how we draw districts? So share with our listeners the facts of the case and uh, and we'll go from there. Sure. So in a nutshell, this is about Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which has very general language, essentially saying that uh, no one can be denied the right to equal participation in the political process uh, on account of race. Um, the, the details, though, the nitty gritty is where it gets controversial. Um, it's essentially been interpreted to require that states create some number of so-called majority minority districts. So if you have a state that that's, say, 30 percent black, and you have, say, eight uh, congressional districts, if a state uh, gerrymandered them in such a way that none of those eight districts was majority black, um, that would be, uh, under current doctrine, that would be a problem uh, under uh, Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. The notion would be you're intentionally gerrymandering them in such a way that uh, that there's no one district where uh, a majority of, of black voters might uh, pick the candidate of their choice or of their, of their preference. Um, this case, the specific facts of this case is where their Alabama is required to create a second majority black district. Um, essentially, a group of plaintiffs sued challenging their current map, which only has one majority black district, saying it would be easy enough for you to create a second one. Uh, Alabama says, no, we've always had this this general map has been the same way it has been for about 30 years, and it's drawn based on community cohesiveness, uh, which is also an important uh, requirement. And one of the, there are several issues going up, both about the Voting Rights Act and about the Constitution. So the constitutional question is, okay, if the Voting Rights Act does require uh, race conscious uh, redistricting to this extent, to the extent that race consciousness trumps other issues like community cohesiveness, does that raise a problem under the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment, um, which has been interpreted in in, uh, previous Supreme Court decisions to essentially have a baseline race blind uh, sort of 
uh, baseline assumption unless you have a compelling government interest uh, requiring you to be uh, race conscious, to take race into account. And this is obviously a doctrine that comes up in many cases. It's going to come up again in the affirmative action cases later this term. Um, but this is the first opportunity for this current court with, as you say, the new Justice Jackson uh, to confront this question of race. When uh, are you allowed to have a law that is race conscious under the Equal Protection Clause? So there's a lot to unpack there. So again, from a layman's perspective, there's two views of what's going on here. It's either that um, race consciousness, if we want to aspire to colorblindness and essentially draw districts with no race in mind, uh, some, I I guess the defendants in this case, the state of Alabama says, look, we we drew these, uh, we didn't consider race, we just considered, uh, you know, cohesiveness. Um, uh, In fact, that's what the, the, Constitution mandates. Uh, in my understanding of what uh, Justice Jackson said is actually it's the opposite. The 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 Voting Rights Act and the Constitution. Even she took what I would what I I heard to be an originalist perspective that the the intent of the writers of the Fourteenth Amendment, the so-called Reconstruction Amendments, require race to be considered so as to protect those in in a minority. Particularly in that case was freedmen or or former slaves. Um, does the, you know, in your view as a scholar, does the Constitution require uh, race consciousness when when looking at voting rights, or does it prohibit it? I, I don't understand. You're you're really putting me a spot. That's a question that we could have a two hour podcast on just that one topic. I'm hesitant. This is such a big question. I'm hesitant to take a definitive view, but I can try to illuminate at least some of the fault lines in this debate. Um, so that and give your read your listeners um some lines to go down um in, in following this huge question. So one of the biggest you're absolutely right that Justice Jackson spoke the language of originalists, and that to me is a really big deal, however you come down on this debate, that she's engaging with the more libertarian or conservative side of the court on their own terms. She's not primarily citing to Supreme Court precedent or just to policy. She's looking at the text, history, and tradition of the 14th Amendment. And I think any uh, originalist should be pleased by that, that that is where these debates are happening. So one big core debate in originalism is original intent of drafters versus original public meaning. And that's something where the originalist debate has really shifted in the last 30, 40 years or so. It started much more looking at the original intent, trying to read what the framers of, be it the original constitution or the 14th amendment wrote in terms of what are they trying to do here? What did they expect it to do? Uh, But then some people raised the legitimate concern, if something's written by 100 people or passed by 200 people in Congress, do they really all have the same intent? Often not. And so then people started looking to the original public meaning. What would an educated reader of English at the time have understood these words on the page to mean, regardless of what its drafters wanted it to mean? Uh, So Justice Jackson looked, at least in her um, uh, talk from the bench, and her questions, she was focusing more on the intent of the drafters of the 14th Amendment, who are absolutely very concerned with uh, putting the freedmen, the recently freed slaves, back in a position of equality and full participation in society, which is absolute, uh, you know, cannot be disputed as a historical matter. Other originalists will say, regardless of the intent they had, the words on the page simply say the equal protection of the law. And perhaps that can be interpreted, or perhaps that simply means um, race blindness more than race consciousness. So I'll give one example of where another way this could um, make a difference. 
that that has come up in the past. You can make a strong historical argument that the drafters of the 14th Amendment were really only concerned with the freedmen and, and black versus white equality at the time. There was not a lot of thought put to other races, uh, that especially those that would have more immigration later on, especially from China, Asian Americans. Um, so a lot of early proto-originalists, even on the Supreme Court, said the Equal Protection Clause does not apply to Asians because that was not the intent. It was only about black versus white. Whereas a lot of modern day originalists, original public meaning originalists, would say it doesn't matter if they if the drafters of the 14th Amendment held racist views about Asians or didn't intend it to apply to Asians. Equal protection, there's no limitation in its text, and therefore it applies to every race um, equally. So you can have so it, there's a lot of consequence to which theory of originalism um, you adopt. Well, that's, a, you know, again, I, pre- I appreciate I've um, we're, we're dancing on uh, landmines here and there's a lot lot we could talk about. So let's let's shelve that and then jump into uh, equally uh, a related uh, case um, uh, about a race. And we're talking about actually it's two cases because they've been separated. The, the um, um, affirmative action cases against uh, Harvard and uh, UNC. So uh, we've got two different cases, slightly different fact uh, pattern. But in a nutshell, we're talking about is it the prerogative of of uh, uh, colleges to use race as a criteria when uh, deciding who to admit? So let's let's start um, let's start with Harvard. I think it's a little more uh, a case that's perhaps more simple. Um, what are the cases? What are the facts in that that case? Sure. So so in a nutshell, this this has been an ongoing project um, from a, a specific group of students for fair admission. Um, challenging. Uh, they've been looking for plaintiffs for quite a while, and they've they're really focusing on um, the admissions practice and the unequal effect on Asian American applicants versus other underrepresented minority groups um, in the admission uh, factors. And they're looking both at Harvard's explicit uh, policies in terms of uh, affirmative ac- race based affirmative action, but also in in some cases even more so, they're looking at. Uh, other factors that aren't explicitly race supposed to be race conscious, things uh, kind of hard to quantify, not so much numerical things such as GPA or SAT scores, but these so-called character scores, you know, leadership ability, um, extracurriculars and such. And so they've been there have been a lot of um, kind of requests for the internal procedures and uh, the notes that Harvard makes. And what they found was a rather large, strikingly large disparity in different racial groups in terms of what's their average score on these kind of hard to quantify character traits. And they found that Asians, in their view, suspiciously uh, were scoring getting very low scores um, compared to other races on these character traits. And so one of their arguments is that this is essentially a way in which Harvard is is taking race into account even more than they've claimed publicly by by giving disparate uh, scores on these on these hard to quantify character traits. Um, and the legal claim, even though Harvard is obviously a private university, so the constitutional limitations don't directly apply to it. But because it receives public funds, there's a law that says that the same standards uh, that would apply to public universities in terms of admissions apply to private universities so long as they accept these government funds. And so uh, if this admissions procedure would violate uh, the Equal Protection Clause for a public university, uh, Harvard also is not allowed to do it. Uh, And so again, um, in the interest of time, I also want to cover uh, University of North Carolina. Similar case, but slightly different facts is going to be heard uh, separately. Uh, how, How does UNC differ? 
Uh, sim- similar cases, similar case in, in in many ways. UNC is a more straightforward is because it a public university. So the uh, 14th Amendment um, directly applies. The Equal Protection Clause obviously applies to the states. Um, the particular policies they may have differ, um, but ultimately I think it's going to come down to the, the, the same constitutional question. The biggest difference, honestly, is just that Ketanji Brown Jackson happened to be on one of the governing boards of Harvard as a alumnus of uh, both the undergrad and law school. So she uh, quite rightly recused from the Harvard case, but is not recused from the UNC case. So this could create an interesting difference in the votes between the two. That's why they were originally consolidated, but have now been split. So we're going to get two separate oral arguments, one with Justice Jackson in attendance and voting, the other with Justice Jackson not in attendance and not voting. Is the case in these, uh, you know, the case for affirmative action, is it is it to undo past um, uh, discrimination in a sense to right a wrong? Or is it instead to assert that a school with a, a more diverse background, let's say, uh, with, let's say, more uh, black and um, Hispanic students and fewer uh, Asian students is just a better uh, education. Is does, do those kinds of facts enter into the argument, or is it just you know discrimination is is either constitutional or it's not? So under current doctrine, under current Supreme Court doctrine, it's only the diversity rationale that can justify race conscious admissions. Now a lot of progressive, both originalists or just progressive legal commentators in general, think that that was a wrong turn that the Supreme Court took. It goes all the way back to a concurrence by Justice Powell in the Bakke case, B-A-K-K-E from the 70s, where he at the time was the only one to rely on this diversity rationale. But then in 2003, in the Grutter case, um, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor picked up that rationale, that diversity rationale, and it got five votes at the Supreme Court. Uh, so what you'll hear from a lot of progressive commentators is that really the more important and the more fundamental reason for race conscious admissions is to rectify both past and current discrimination that people um, suffer just through the course of their lives uh, on account of race. But uh, the Supreme, there, this particular case, Harvard and UNC are not asking to revisit that that turn that the Supreme Court took in 2003. So they're relying on the diversity rationale, which admittedly is is kind of an awkward rationale to have, because in some ways it's premised on the benefit of not the minority students. It's premised on the notion that white students or Asian students or what have you will benefit from being in a in a group with a larger uh, population, uh, a more representative of the of the overall population of minority students. So for better or for worse, that's that's the one justification um, that Harvard and UNC are, are allowed to uh, to put forward. Again, this is a case that we probably could spend a, a podcast just focusing on this, uh, but we'll we'll try to in this round the world we'll try to move on and and then talk about a, uh, a another case. Um, perhaps I don't know if it's more fringe, but it's related to our earlier t- uh, discussion about uh, elections. Um, I'm speaking specifically of Moore v. Harper. Um, where we're talking about uh, whether state legislators are free to make voting rules or if they're bound uh, by either their own judiciary or the federal government uh, to to uh, make those rules. Uh, share with our listeners what the what's at stake in this case and and why um, you know it it speaks to the the current day of uh, you know states' rights and voting rights and all of that sort of thing. Yeah, so this is a case about what's come to be known as the independent state legislature doctrine. And that comes from uh, the text in the Constitution. Uh, The Constitution says the times, places, and manners of holding congressional elections are going to be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof. 
And the question, it's essentially a textual interpretation question. How literally do we take that word legislature? So the conventional wisdom for a while until this case and similar cases bubbled up was that legislature is really just a shorthand for the lawmaking process of a state, whatever that may be. Almost every state is modeled on the federal government. You have uh, two houses of the state legislature and then a governor's veto. And then you have a state constitution, which, uh, and which has certain limitations, which the state Supreme Court can apply to particular laws, strike those down if it violates the state constitution. The independent state legislature doctrine argues that no, legislature isn't shorthand for the process. We have to take it literally. It just means the state legislature. So at its most extreme, it means a uh, governor of a state is not allowed to veto laws related to congressional elections, even if he's allowed to veto any other state law. And the state constitution does not apply, any of its limits cannot apply to laws regulating congressional elections, because that would be the state constitution trumping uh, a bill passed by the state legislature. I will say it. one important thing to keep in mind uh, that on one reason why it would not be a complete see change compared to state versus federal power is that this does not change. Even if the proponents of independent state legislature win this case completely, that does not change the relationship between the state and the federal government. So they concede that the federal constitution still has limits, which justifiably can be imposed on state laws, including state laws related to um, congressional elections. And in fact, the text of the constitution itself says that Congress can at any time alter those regulations about the time, place, and manner of congressional elections. So federal courts and the federal Congress would still have power. The big losers in this case, if the court adopts the independent state legislature theory, would be state courts applying state constitutional law. Indeed, this is this is a, a complex issue. Um, all right, so uh, again, in the interest of time, I want to move on to, I think, which is, uh, again, these are... Uh, um, familiar topics to those who follow the court, um, speaking specifically of the discrimination or the prerogative to discriminate in the case of the 303 Creative um, uh, case, where a woman who designs websites for weddings uh, has uh, asserted that it's her prerogative to not make such uh, websites for uh, same-sex weddings. Uh, the case is clearly uh, one where um, she either must, in the interest of uh, protecting uh, those who do not want to be discriminated against or against those who uh, want the right to uh, to uh, make decisions about their own own work. So share with our listeners the facts in that case. Yeah. So this is uh, in many ways similar to the Masterpiece Cake Shop case, which coincidentally came from the same state, Colorado. I'm not sure why all these conflicts seem to trace back to Colorado. Um, but as you said, this is a independent, uh, single person owned business. She essentially just started as a freelancer, uh, what designing wedding websites, the kind that says, you know, our story, here's how to give us gifts and, and whatnot. And she puts her own art and she puts her own, uh, writing style into it. And the state, of uh, Colorado said that if you do not accept uh, same-sex couples and provide the same services, make websites for them as well, you're violating uh, the, our laws that require you to essentially take all comers. If you're a business op open to the public, you can't discriminate uh, on the basis of sexual orientation. So what was weird about this decision at the 10th Circuit, the appellate court that, that Colorado is, uh, is a part of, is that they accepted her First Amendment argument all the way up until the very last step. They said, yes, this website you design is your own speech. Yes, there is a First Amendment right to decide how you speak and to not be forced by the government to speak. 
But every right, including First Amendment rights, can be overcome by compelling government interest. That's so-called strict scrutiny test. Now, it's very rare for a court to find that a government interest is so compelling that it satisfies strict scrutiny and that that over, right, overrules uh, a First Amendment right when that when that right is found. Um, but in this case, the court said, yes, there is a compelling interest. And their theory was that because she's uh, a write, her own writer, an author, essentially an artist, uh, no one else is going to design a website in exactly the same way as she is. So therefore, she's a monopoly of one, um, just like no one's going to draw a Picasso in the same way a Picasso would. No one's going to write a Dickens in the same way a Dickens would. No one's going to create a website in the same way that 303 uh, Alanis is going to create a website. And therefore, uh, there's a compelling government interest in ensuring equal access to the monopoly she has on her own unique um, art. Now, this is obviously a theory that if you extrapolate it out and think about, okay, what else might that apply to? Um, you start to see how it could have large implications uh, that that uh, would create a rather large exception to the First Amendment compelled speech um, doctrine. You know, could you apply this to artists, billboard designers, uh, pamphleteers, uh, you know, press release writers, etc.? Um, you could have a lot of people essentially forced into uh, writing things that go against uh, their conscience. So, in fact, this this reasoning was so odd that at the Supreme Court, Colorado isn't even asking the Supreme Court. To primarily to accept the Tenth Circuit's reasoning, they're saying no. This isn't. We're not forcing her to speak at all. So don't affirm based on the Tenth Circuit's strict scrutiny theory. You should affirm primarily because we're not forcing her to speak. We're just forcing her to provide a service, and no one would think that she herself believes what she's writing for her website. Um, so it, this is a somewhat unusual case where the the appellate court decision was on on such a weird reasoning that that neither side is really defending it. So to those who that's that's the explanation of to those who would say, well, why doesn't uh, you know, why don't those uh, couples just find someone else to design their website? What what the the um, plaintiffs have said is she's the only one who can do them as well as she does them. She's yeah. she's the monopoly of 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 her website. I, I would imagine I, I, for our listeners, I would think imagine a, a cause that you dislike more than anything in the world. Imagine you being compelled to. Uh, um, build a website for that cause uh, and, and not having the prerogative to say no. That to me seems very, very odd. Uh, how does this fall down along uh, right and left or, you know, as we like to say, uh, you know, conservative, uh, progressive uh, judges or or does anyone take Colorado's side here? It's most likely to fall around long right and left. If I had to guess, I would guess that this is going to have a similar breakdown to the Masterpiece Cake Shop, um, although that case ended up being kind of a punt at the Supreme Court. They essentially said, well, we see some biased language in the Colorado Commission charged with enforcing this law, so we're going to send it back for a more non-biased procedure. Um, but if people are interested in predicting how this is likely to go, I'd say go back and listen to the oral argument to, for Masterpiece Cake Shop from a few years ago, and you'll hear um, essentially the justices making the case for the respective sides of is this compelled speech or is this not. And in fact, Justice Alito had a few hypotheticals exactly along the lines you're saying, imagine the thing you disagree with most. Could a Jewish baker be forced to bake a cake celebrating Kristallnacht. That was actually one of his questions at the oral argument. Um, so I imagine I'm imagining similar hypotheticals coming from Justice Alito and the more conservative justices are going to come uh, this term. So uh, again, we're up against the clock. I want to make sure we get in uh, one last case. Uh, we're again, uh, two years in a row now talking about the EPA and it's a um, 
It's, uh, uh, I, I would call it maybe mission creep. Uh, the case is Sackett versus e e Environmental Protection Agency. Uh, I think these are uh, people who had bought a house and they want to build on it. And somehow uh, on some moist ground, uh, the EPA has asserted that this is uh, relating to uh, the national waters that they're charged with protecting. So share with our listeners the, the facts in this case. Yeah, so I should disclose uh, that the Sackets are represented by Pacific Legal Foundation, which I used to work for. I have not worked on this particular case for them, but I'm friends with many of the Sackets lawyers. Cato Institute, where I currently work, did file an amicus brief supporting them. So we certainly have a side in this uh, fight, but essentially the debate is over the definition of waters of the United States um, in the Clean Water Act. That's not a term that's defined any deeper than that. So what is a water? The EPA says that it's any moist ground, as you put it, that has a significant nexus to a larger navigable water. So their theory is if your backyard is sometimes a marsh or a swamp, even if it's just in the summer, and animals or, or could uh, migrate between you and say a nearby lake, or evaporation patterns or underwater groundwater um, could mix the two. Um, essentially, if your uh, if your backyard, the marsh in your backyard, could have any effect on the nearby larger navigable water body of water, that's enough for you to fall under the jurisdiction of the Clean Water Act. The Sackets are asking for a more bright line rule. They're asking for a rule that would be easier for someone to uh, tell whether they pass it just by using their own eyes. They're saying no, waters have to be continually touching each other. So you have to find just using your own eyes, surface water connection between whatever water may be in your backyard and the nearby river, lake, stream, whatever it is that the EPA unquestionably does have jurisdiction over. So this difference between the two tests is going to make the difference in this case because the Sackett's own backyard is separated by a road from uh, the river that leads into nearby Priest Lake in Idaho, which no one disputes the EPA has uh, jurisdiction over. And uh, in my view, the biggest strength of the Sackett's test is just how much easier it is to apply because you really see the flaw here. This case has dragged on 16 years and we still don't have a decision over whether uh, they can build in their in their own lot or not. Um, and you just can't have, you know, cases like this dragging on for decades and people spending thousands of dollars just to find out whether the law applies to them or not. Yeah, this seems like a deeper case. I think to to uh, um, if someone takes a, just a cursory look at this, it's sort of a, um, someone protecting the environment versus someone who wants to destroy the environment. But instead, I think what they're making the case is, uh, as citizens, we should know the rules before uh, we play the game so that if if the rules are clearly laid out, we can follow them. If they're in the mind of an EPA administrator and they seem to be uh, somewhat ephemeral, uh, to use an environmental uh, stream uh, term, uh, nobody can follow the rules because nobody knows what the rules are. Is that the essence of, of what we're dealing with here? Yeah, that's really the core of the of the Sackett's argument is that it, significant nexus is essentially in the eye of the beholder. And once again, back to the theme of a single concurrence uh, causing create, uh, confusion. I talked about Justice Powell's Bakke concurrence was the origin of the uh, diversity rationale. Well, well, the significant nexus test is just Justice Kennedy's concurrence in a case called Rapinos, another Pacific Legal Foundation case from 2006. So four justices essentially wanted the test that the Sacketts are putting forward now, four wanted an even broader test, and Justice Kennedy alone said significant nexus. And now uh, we're back at the Supreme Court essentially because no one has known, figured out a way to reconcile that Kennedy concurrence with the four justice plurality. And we essentially have to pick one test or the other now. We can't, we can't continue with confusion about which one applies. 
Is the EPA um, going to mention mission creep? Uh, is this a broader issue of, let's say, um, executive branch agencies just sort of uh, uh, growing naturally with with no box to contain them? Is, is this, you know, sort of is this is what uh, w- without guidance from the courts, isn't this what administrative uh, agencies naturally are inclined to do? Well, certainly the EPA has has taken as aggressive a, a attack as it possibly can in, in several rulemakings. Um, it's taken an expansive view, though you also have a case of of the party in power um, has a big effect. So we've also seen some flip-flopping back and forth, where when Republicans were in power, they kind of mandated EPA to take a narrower view of, of its powers. So you can also make a case here that um, it's better for the courts to select one specific policy rather than essentially having uh, the EPA's interpretation of the law flip flat back and forth with, with every presidential election, that you don't have predictability or consistency in that way either. And this is fundamentally a, a legal interpretation question. What does waters of the United States mean? Uh, the fact that administrations have flip-flopped back and forth shows that the EPA isn't really doing statutory interpretation when it picks one of these tests. It's, it's doing policymaking. Indeed. And I would say, you know, rules is rules, right? We would, you know, for those of us who worry about um, politics intervening or in, uh, blurring lines, if a rule's written down, um, it's easier for everyone to follow and, and harder for politicians to bend. I would say to those listening who are environmentalists who, who say, look, the EPA's, their heart's in the right place. Um, they should be allowed to do whatever is necessary. I, I wonder if we we imagine a different scenario where uh, we assert that, let's say, the U.S. military is char- tasked with keeping us all safe. Therefore, they should go ahead and on whatever military venture they see a deem uh, uh, worthy of keeping us fit. No one would buy into that. And yet uh, we just imagine the EPA's uh, whatever they think is best must be best. It, it seems to me an odd, odd confidence in in uh, um, uh, in, uh, let's say, executive prerogatives. Yeah, for sure. OK, well, thank you, uh, Tommy. This has been uh, a lot to lot to digest. Um, uh, a lot to look forward to. Uh, perhaps maybe at the end of this uh, session, you we can uh, reconvene and, and see how things went, see which way the chips fell and uh, see um, uh, what, what country we're living in. Absolutely. That would be great. Thank you, Tommy. Thank you. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support Hubwonk and Pioneer Institute. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. It would make it easier for others to find Hubwonk if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're grateful if you share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me regarding future Hubwonk episodes, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.